We are back in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, different verses, but same text in Hebrews chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 8. Warnings of potential danger are all around us, and they are not there to try and scare us, but to keep us safe. They are there to warn us about potential pitfalls in life so that we don't go there and suffer the consequences. We see signs when we travel, signs like steep cliff or um, bridge out. These kinds of things are meant to warn us that there is danger up ahead, whether we're hiking or driving or whatever it might be. We have warning signs on the dashboard of our cars now that illumine when there is something wrong, something that we need to get checked out before something greater happens. Sirens are constantly blaring, reminding us that there are emergency vehicles that we need to get out of the way of because they are on to some place to help someone. We want our children and our grandchildren, remind them, reminding them regularly of dangers that they face in life. I mean, if you have a child or a grandchild who is of driving age, you probably warned them this past Tuesday, given the blizzard of 2019, about their driving. I know I did. I reminded my kids, hey, there's some snow out there, so be careful, slow down, watch where you are going. We warned them about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. We warned them about being with the wrong people. We are obsessed with safety. I've just started a book over the weekend that in part talks about how we are such a safety-conscious society that in some ways it might be actually harming our children that we are so safety conscious. Now, that's a topic for another day. But the point is, we have warnings because we want people to be safe. All of these warnings have to do with mostly physical dangers, sometimes emotional dangers when it comes to relationships. But if we are so intent on warning people or ourselves about physical danger or emotional danger, shouldn't we also do the same thing when it comes to spiritual danger? If indeed our spiritual life is the most important aspect of our lives, if our soul is the most valuable thing that we possess, then ought we to guard it and heed the warnings for our lives? Jesus himself said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and yet loses his own soul. And Paul repeatedly warned in various epistles. In fact, many of the epistles were written for the express purpose of warning a church or an individual about false doctrine coming from false teachers that would have a negative impact on someone's spiritual life. We see it all over the New Testament. We see these warnings throughout Scripture. In fact, I think I could argue that even God's commands are actually warnings. That is, God tells us, don't do this because he doesn't want us to suffer the negative consequences of doing that. So even the commands are a warning, a warning in love. But there are also, of course, specific warnings dealing with our salvation, including the one that we are going to look at this morning. Hebrews has at least five specific passages that we would categorize as warning passages as it pertains to salvation, or our word for the day, apostasy. 
And the one we're looking at this morning is no doubt the harshest of the five warning passages in Hebrews. The writer here, and we really do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but the writer here is clearly concerned that at least some in his audience are in danger of turning away. They are in danger of, in all likelihood, reverting back to Judaism. That is, he's writing to a mainly Jewish audience. You can see it throughout this letter. That's why it's one of the more difficult epistles for us to understand because it has so much Jewish background to it. And one of his major concerns is that some who have made a newfound profession of faith in Christ are on the verge of going backwards. They are on the verge of returning to their former life. Now, that question, the question then is, does this danger still exist today? Not the danger of reverting to Judaism, for we are not Jews, we are Gentiles. But does the danger exist for professing believers to abandon their faith in Christ and revert back to their old life? And the answer is yes. Since God's Word is timeless and men and women's hearts are consistent, there is still the very real danger that professing Christians could turn away from the faith. If you've been with us, you know we started a brief four-week series on the four different aspects or four angles of salvation. We started with preservation, meaning that God keeps those who are His. When God saves, God keeps. In fact, that's what we sang about just a few moments ago. He will hold me fast. That's a preservation song that God keeps those who belong to Him. And then the second week, we looked at the word perseverance. That is, those whom God saves persevere. In fact, we heard Jesus say twice in Matthew's gospel, those who endure or persevere to the end will be saved. We acknowledge the seeming contradiction between those two things. Does God keep us or do we keep on? And the answer is yes. Both of those are true. They are both taught biblically, even if we have a hard time wrapping them around our minds and understanding how they come together. And today we face another apparent contradiction. If God keeps those who are His, why then are there warning passages in Scripture about falling away? I mean, does God keep us, or is it possible for us to fall away? If it is possible for us to fall away, then we have to question whether or not God really keeps us. And that's a good question. It's a question I hope to answer this morning. Next week, we will conclude this series with the word assurance. That, that is, we will look at, is it possible for us to know with certainty that we are genuine believers who will go to heaven when we die? But today, our word is apostasy, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it 
and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. First thing we need to do this morning is to simply see the issue. That is, we need to understand, not just see, but we need to understand what this issue is all about. And as I've said throughout, this is a difficult passage of Scripture to interpret. In fact, most would say that Hebrews chapter 6 is the hardest chapter in the book, and verses 4 through 8 are the hardest verses in this hardest of chapters. Now, whatever it is this author is talking about, and we will get there, but whatever it is he is talking about, he is clearly adamant about it. It is impossible, he says, to restore them again to repentance. Whatever it is that he's talking about potentially happening, if it does happen, it is such a serious issue that he says it is impossible to bring them back. As you know, the word impossible is a very strong word. And as a result, we must not lessen nor diminish the force of this warning. Three other times in this letter of Hebrews, the word impossible is used. It is impossible for God to lie. That is, it absolutely cannot happen. It is impossible for God to lie. Likewise, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Only Christ can do that. The sacrificial offerings of the Old Testament did not take away sin. And thirdly, in Hebrews chapter 11, it is impossible to please God without faith. So the expression here, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, is clearly something that cannot happen. Now there are two issues that we sometimes link together in this particular discussion. And although they are very similar, they are not the same. Apostasy, that's what we're talking about, is the abandonment of the Christian faith by someone who has formerly professed it. It is a repudiation of the beliefs once held. It is abandoning that which you have professed. And sadly, there have been several high-profile situations even in this year of this very thing happening. Most notably, a man by the name of Joshua Harris, a preacher, popular author, and speaker, best known for his books on dating and purity. Certain ages, generations were essentially raised in the evangelical church on, on Joshua Harris's teaching on dating and purity. And just this year, he renounced his faith. He abandoned the Christian belief and turned away from it and walked away. The other issue, not apostasy, but the second issue that is normally linked together is the loss of salvation. Not a repudiation of it here, but simply losing salvation somehow. That is, by some sin I committed, by the totality of the sins I've committed, or by the lack of good deeds that I have not done. That is, the belief that I once had salvation, but I've done something to nullify that. The reason both of these issues are so confusing is because there are denominations, local denominations, with whom we have a lot of agreement who disagree with us on this particular topic. In other words, it is normally easier to spot heresy 
because it is so far different from what we believe. And oftentimes it is promoted by a group that we readily recognize as a cult or an offshoot of some sort. And so we say, no, that is strange doctrine. We do not believe that. But in this case, it is harder to pinpoint because, again, there are local people, people you work with and go to school with, who differ with us on this particular issue of doctrine. For example, the United Methodist Church, and you know that they are very local. There's one right up the street. The United Methodist Church teaches that a genuine believer can lose their salvation due to some sort of sin. That is, they teach that it is possible for someone to be truly saved and then do something that causes them to lose that salvation. Now, generally speaking, those who teach this also teach that that salvation can be regained somehow. And therefore, it sets people up for a roller coaster emotionally and spiritually for much of their life. But our text clearly says that, again, whatever it is he's talking about, if it happens, it cannot be regained. So we're not talking here about the loss of salvation due to some sort of sin. Then there is the Christian church, not Christians, but the Christian church, a denomination of which Johnson Bible College is a participant. They're a Christian church-based school. This denomination does teach that one can apostatize. They do not teach that you can lose your salvation due to sin, but they do teach that you can repudiate, you can abandon, you can renounce your salvation. That is, you can be genuinely saved and then reach a point in your life where you decide you don't want it any longer and you walk away from it. And I do not call out these particular denominations to point my finger at them just to show you how confusing this can be when brothers and sisters in Christ who agree with us on a lot of things disagree with us in this regard. So we are talking specifically about apostasy. That is what Hebrews is warning about here. And we must admit that this is not a hypothetical warning. If there is no possibility of some committing apostasy, then the warning is of no use. There is a real danger. This is not an imaginary situation. Now, we have to admit that the wording of whoever he is talking about is very strong. Not just the word impossible, though that starts it out for us. But notice again all of the phrases that he links together about whoever these people are and what they have experienced. He says they have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gifts. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of God or the goodness of God's Word. And they have tasted of the goodness of the age to come. Now we have to admit that if this is all we have, if this is the only passage on apostasy and there are no other passages that teach about it or contrary to it, then we would have to conclude that what he's talking about here certainly sounds a lot like a genuinely converted individual. These are not people who have merely observed the Christian faith from afar. These are not people who have been indifferent to the things of God. These are folks who have tasted and been a part of the local body of believers. Now, let me also call your attention to the various audiences that are being addressed because I think that's important to the understanding of what he's talking about here. In verse 4, he says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and on and on he goes. 
So again, that's very vague. We don't know exactly who he's talking about, but he's talking about a group of people who have experienced these things, and in their case, he says, so that's one group. But then when you drop down to verse 9, a verse that we mentioned briefly last week, he says, yet in your case, now he's talking to a different audience, yet in your case, beloved, we feel better, we feel sure of better things, things that pertain to salvation. And so it appears he's addressing two different groups here. There is a minority of people whom he is addressing who are on the verge, who are in danger of reverting back to their old way of life. But there is a majority to whom he is writing that he is sure of better things, things that pertain to salvation. And we saw last week that he is sure of that based on their perseverance and their production of fruit. And the word, therefore, falling away is the word for apostasy. And so we've seen apostasy is an abandonment of the faith once professed. And I'm emphasizing that word professed because it's going to make a difference in what we conclude in just a few moments. So we've seen the issue. But certainly that's not enough. The issue is apostasy. But we must go beyond seeing the issue or even understanding it. And we must secondly hear the warning. This is a warning, sure and simple. That is clear enough. Nobody doubts that this is a warning passage. But what is he warning about? That is the interpretive challenge. And there are basically two options. First, again, the Christian church would teach this can refer to someone who is genuinely saved, but they have now renounced their salvation. They willingly and consciously walked away from the faith they once possessed. They say, I used to be saved, I no longer am, I don't want it, I don't need it, I'm going in a different direction. Now, if this is the case, that is, if we really believe that, then my first sermon in this series was an error. Because we cannot at the same time conclude that God keeps those who are His, and yet one who is genuinely His can walk away from the faith. Thereby, there is no assurance of salvation. Now, as you may know, there is a principle of biblical interpretation that says we must interpret Scripture with Scripture. That is, we look to other Scripture to help us interpret the Scripture we are looking at. And there is even a more specific principle that says when we come to a difficult passage of Scripture, we use the clearer portions of Scripture to help us interpret the more difficult ones. And clearly, this is one of those more difficult ones. And so to understand what this is talking about, we've got to go to other passages of Scripture which are more clear in their teaching. And that, in essence, is what we've done the last two weeks. We've heard Jesus say, in fact, Mark read it for you again this morning. Jesus said, those who come to me, I will not lose any of them, but I will raise them up at the last day. We've heard Paul say that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We've heard Jesus say, no one is able to snatch anyone out of my Father's hands because he is all-powerful and no one can come between us and our relationship with God. 
We've talked about God's firm hold on us. We've sung about that this morning. We've heard Paul talk about the unbroken chain of salvation, and we call it that because there is no missing link in there. When God begins the work of salvation, he does bring it to a completion. Therefore, the group remains the same. Those whom he justified, he works through them to sanctify them, and those he justified, he glorified. In fact, we saw in looking at that passage in Romans chapter 8 that he speaks about it in the past tense, which initially doesn't make sense because glorification awaits us in the future. Glorification is the, the finality of our salvation. And yet Paul speaks about it in the past tense because of a technique that was used in that day, and that is when something is so sure and so settled, we know it's going to happen, we can actually speak about it as if it already has. And so Paul says, you've not only been justified, but you've been glorified. So these passages, and many more like them, lead us to come to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, and deny that this text is talking about a genuine believer who walks away and no longer has a salvation that he once had. Which leads us to the second option, and I believe the correct one. And that is, this is a person who did in fact make a profession of faith in Christ, and that profession did indeed look like the real thing for a while, but ultimately proved to be spurious rather than serious. That is, there were some indications, and he lists those things, some indications that this looked a lot like a genuine conversion. But ultimately, it proved not to be so. You remember last week, we looked at the parable that Jesus told of the four soils. Now, the first and the last soil are very easy. The first soil, the hardened heart. They, they don't care about the things of God. There's no response whatsoever. That's an unbeliever. The last soil is the one that springs up and yields fruit, and that fruit is varied. And that's the genuine believer, the fruit-bearing Christian. But those two intermediate soils is where we sometimes get confused. Because both of them show initial signs of life. That is there, there is, there is a plant that grows from that seed. But for various reasons, it dies. Whether it's the scorching sun or the, the, the th thistles and thorns, the weeds that choke it out. Those both intermediate soils talk about what we're talking about this morning. And that is someone who does, in fact, respond to the claims of Christ Someone who does, in fact, show evidence that looks a lot like genuine salvation, but ultimately it does not last, and therefore it is not genuine. If you do not persevere, you are not genuinely saved. That was what we talked about last week. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. The converse then is if you do not persevere, you are not genuinely saved. So the author here is referring to those who are not unlike many in our own churches today, who have heard the gospel, they have hung around the people of God for a time, they might even temporarily involve themselves in the work of God, but they eventually fade away. Perhaps the, the word tasted is a key to our interpretation of this text. Multiple times you see that word tasted, meaning they never fully ingested what they were hearing. They never really applied it to their lives. They just dabbled in it. They just tasted it and ultimately spit it out. And therefore, they're not genuine believers. John says it very clearly in his first epistle. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. That's one of the great things about John and his epistle. He makes things very clear. Even if we don't like what he says. But he makes it easy to understand. He says, hey, there's some people who have left the church. What about them? John says, they went out from us because that's an indication that they were never part of us. Had they been a real part of us, they would have stayed with us. So John makes it very plain that there is within the church both believers and unbelievers. Now, that ought not to be the case as far as membership goes. And I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Church membership in a Baptist church requires you to do two things. Number one, you have to make a profession of faith in Christ. That is, you have to come to a place in your life where you understand your sin and need for a Savior, and you have to confess Christ as your Savior and Lord. But secondly, and we saw this in the early service, you have to not only make that public, but that's not, the making public is not walking forward. We sometimes think that. The making public takes place back there when someone is baptized. And so to be a member of a Baptist church, you have to do those two things. You have to make a profession of faith in Christ, and you have to be baptized by immersion, what we call believer's baptism, because only believers can do that. So every single member of this church... And there are many more that are not here today. Every single member of this church has done those two things. But that does not mean that every single member of this church is a genuine believer. That does not mean that all of them are genuine converts. And that's what John and Hebrews is talking about. Some leave us. And they leave us in demonstration of the fact that they were never a part of us. This is not salvation lost. This is salvation never possessed. It appeared that they had it, but their lack of perseverance shows they did not. Well, why then does this text go on to say that such a person is not able to return? That there is no room, it is impossible for them to come to repentance and that is because they have experienced all of this. They've been close. If they turn away now, they do so with hardened hearts. They tried it all, and in their minds, it did not work. And because they've tried it and found it lacking and left, they are not going to try it again. And as a result, they have in essence declared that the sacrifice of Christ is irrelevant and they stand with those who, are, who crucified him, putting him to shame once again. And again, they do it all with full knowledge because they have been involved in it. They have been a part of it. Verses 7 and 8 are clearly an illustration, and I think it's an illustration that reinforces exactly what I'm suggesting here, that they were never truly saved. It is yet another agricultural illustration. Land that has received rain and produced a crop has been blessed by God for the benefit of those who cultivated it and for the benefit of those for whom it is cultivated. This is the idea of fruit again. That is, God pours out His blessings upon a land and it produces fruit. But on the other hand, if God pours out all of His blessings, the rain and everything that comes with it, and that land does not bear fruit, it is worthless, good only to be burned. Now keep in mind, this illustration does not describe soil that has been neglected. This does not describe soil that has suffered from drought. 
This is land that had every advantage, and yet it did not produce fruit. And don't you hear in that illustration the very thing we were talking about last week? That if you do not persevere and therefore bear fruit, you are not a genuine believer. And we heard Jesus say, you will know them by their fruit. So no fruit means no salvation. Regardless of what blessings you had, regardless of what experiences someone has, if there is no fruit, there is no salvation. Isn't that what we heard at the end of Mark's gospel, that long series we did that we just completed? And as we were coming to the end, Jesus predicts that the temple and the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. But why? Because they did not bear fruit. Isaiah chapter 5, they had been given all of the benefits. They had been given all of the blessings of God. And yet in spite of these blessings and in spite of these benefits, they did not bear fruit. And that was why God was going to come in judgment. And then we, we saw Jesus in that strange incident where he curses a fig tree. And it's strange because it wasn't even the season for fruit. Why was he mad, seemingly, that a fig tree did not have any figs on it when it wasn't even time for figs because it was a picture of Israel. And so he cursed it because it was not bearing fruit, even as Israel was not bearing fruit. And that's exactly what we are talking about here as well. That same scenario continues to play out among Gentiles, many of whom profess faith in Christ but never follow through with a life of faithful following. They might be assured of their salvation, but their assurance rests on faulty facts, some of which we will talk about next week. Now, I want to add that apostasy, that is the abandonment of professed faith, can happen in two ways. First of all, it can be sudden, or at least appear so. That's what we saw with Joshua Harris. None of us saw that coming. We don't know him personally. And therefore, we did not have the opportunity to walk side by side with him and and see the little cracks that might have led to this. It just comes out of the blue, and someone says, I don't believe anymore, I'm done. But the truth of the matter is, it doesn't really come suddenly. It's always gradual, meaning that for months or even years, there's been a slow and steady drift away from God, an indifference and apathy that at first, maybe nobody else noticed. At first, maybe you didn't even notice. But eventually it got worse, leading to doubts and confusion. Biblical warnings like the one we're hearing this morning go ignored. Conviction by God's Spirit spurned. And then it's no wonder you wake up one day and conclude that you no longer believe. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to tell the difference between the beginning of backsliding and the beginning of apostasy. Backsliding is a word that we use. It's a biblical word that speaks about times that all of us have in life. We all have ups and downs in our faith and in our journey of Christianity. We have highs, we have lows. There are times when we do not feel as close to God as we once were, and we call those times sometimes that we have backslidden. That is, we have gone backward a little bit. Maybe we're dabbling in some of the things we used to dabble in, and it is during those times when God disciplines His children. He convicts them of their sin with the desire to see them return. In fact, that's part of what your Sunday school lesson was about this morning, that God disciplines those who are His children, and they rebel against Him with the purpose of bringing the true child home. But if that doesn't happen, 
and we eventually leave all together, we are proving by doing so that we never really belonged at all. Listen to the words that Paul writes in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and following. And you, now he's writing to a Christian church. He's writing to a, a group of believers. So he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That is, he's talking about their past way of life. This is what you used to be. This is what you used to do. But, he goes on to say, he, that is God, has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's talking about conversion. He's talking about salvation. This is what you used to be. But God has done something, and now you are someone different. But look at the next phrase. If indeed you continue in the faith. Perseverance again, right? He says these things. This is what you used to be. This is what you now are. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And so that's like the opposite of apostasy. He uses three S words to remind us of what the opposite looks like. He says you're to be stable, you're to be steadfast, and you are not to be shifting, all of which are the opposite of apostasy. So we've seen the issue, the abandonment of professed faith. We have hopefully heard the warning, but that's not all either. The third thing we need to do is feel the weight by that, I mean we do not need to quickly brush this off as possible for others and not possible for us. We certainly do not need to be pointing our fingers and trying to decide who may or may not be on the verge of committing apostasy or how far along people are down on that track or who has already done it and therefore are hopeless. Warnings are meant to be taken seriously. You do not like it when your kids brush off warnings you give them. Dad, you're just being dramatic. That's never going to happen. We give warnings out of love, and we want our children to heed those warnings as serious. Now, that is not to say that we must live our lives under the burden of this warning. That is why we will talk about assurance next week, and that is why I've said all along that you really need to be here for all four of these sermons, because if you just get one or two, you're going to get a distorted view of salvation. You need all four. So I don't mean to say that we can never have assurance of our salvation. That is next week's topic. I've told you before that we often go to extremes, and that's true in many areas of life. That is, we react against something, and in reacting against something, we go to the other extreme. The Puritans years ago were to one side of the equation where they, they really took seriously their sin. They wrestled with it. Sometimes they wrestled for months, if not years, before ever coming to faith in Christ because they were so burdened by their sin. Now we've gone to the opposite extreme. We don't think about it at all. Once saved, always saved. God can forgive me. All i got to do is ask. And we don't feel the weight of our own salvation and the warnings that we find here in Scripture. These warnings are really just the opposite of the same equation we talked about last week. We must persevere rather than walk away. So we must endure bearing fruit, thereby demonstrating true faith. And if we do not, instead we walk away, then we are demonstrating that we never had true faith. These are warnings of love. 
urging us to continue on the right path rather than turning down the wrong path and facing destruction. I also want to remind us that it is not our task to determine who's, uh, where others stand in this regard. It is our task to share the gospel with all. Because there is a way of reading this text, a wrong way, but a way of reading this text that would lead us to conclude that some people are beyond hope. And I think the text does say that, but we don't know who they are. We, we can never know someone's heart. We can never know someone's intention. We don't know if God is melting their heart or he's not. We don't ultimately know whose heart is hard and whose heart is not. Therefore, it is not our job, and we sometimes do this, whether we know Hebrews 6 or not, we sometimes do this. We say, don't bother talking to them. They will never change. That's a way of saying someone's beyond hope. And we don't know that. So our responsibility is to always share the gospel with people, not to decide who has apostatized or who is not, but to share the gospel of grace with everyone because we don't know who will repent and who will not. We don't know who is backslidden and who has already committed apostasy. We simply don't know these things. And so our task is to share, not decide ahead of time who will respond. Perseverance and apostasy are the opposites of really the same thing. The litmus test of whether I truly chose faith in the past is am I choosing it today? You know, we sometimes talk about salvation as a past event. Someone will say, are you, are you saved? Oh, yes, I'm saved because when I was 10, I, I prayed a prayer and I joined the church. We always look to the past to talk about salvation. But the litmus test of salvation is what am I doing in the present? That's not to say that we're saved every day as we renew our faith. But that is to say if I made a credible and genuine profession of faith in the past, then I'm making it in the present too. And if I'm making it in the past and in the present, I'm going to make it in the future. So it's not necessarily about what I did when I was 10 or what I did 40 or 50 years ago. The question is, what are you doing today? Choose you this day, Joshua said, whom you will serve. Now they could have said, we already made that decision in the past. No, Joshua says, you need to choose today whom you are going to serve. And we are faced with that choice day after day. Again, not a not a re-salvation every day, but a reaffirmation that my salvation decision in the past is genuine because I'm still choosing it today, and I'm going to choose it tomorrow as well. Faith that perseveres rather than turns away. Let me pray.